James. Morning, everybody. We don't take attendance, but they, but we do have makeup exams because this is all on the final, every bit of it. Uh, James, we're in James chapter four today. James, uh, most likely the brother of Jesus, converted after the resurrection, along with the other brothers of of uh, our Lord, um, pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, James the Just, noted for his righteousness, his just character, uh, so much so that the uh, Orthodox Jews finally got around to stoning him to death for being so righteous. Um, May that happen to others uh, like that. (laughs) Anyway, he's a very uh, fine man. uh, His little letter is 108 verses, uh, but with some... um, 60 imperatives in it. So he's, uh, he, he, uh, uh, he loves to give little pointed uh, commands, as it were. Uh, there's some 28 references to the Sermon on the Mount in here. So he very much writes like Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. And there are a number of themes that we've addressed, temptation and testing. And last time, two weeks ago, we talked about the tongue. We had his tongue lashing in which he reminded us of the power of tongue to do great evil, uh, set on fire by Sheol, by Gehenna, by the garbage dump. And the same tongue is capable of blessing and praising and beautiful things as well, and what a paradox it is. Uh, But in chapter 4, we move to a whole new subject. Um, And it's a very interesting subject. James uses excellent Greek and uh, and we've already seen that he uses uh, sometimes some interesting technical words. And here we have some now. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Where do wars and fightings come among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Now, at first glance, this would seem to be a discussion of Arguments and quarrels in a local situation, a local setting, like in a marriage or in a friendship or a business relationship with your boss that goes bad. And he wants to address the issue of how come human beings don't get along with each other? How come we're, in, uh, we're always arguing and quarreling and fighting among ourselves? But he uses uh, the Greek word here for wars as in military wars, and he uses the word for battles uh, because an ordinary war consists of a series of battles or or campaigns that constitute a war. So I think we could escalate this passage from the local situation of conflicts between individuals all the way up to conflicts between nations with a little, if we sort this through, and I need your help to sort out what he's getting at. Because he says right away that war and fighting in the world and quarreling among us is caused by our desires uh, for pleasure, which war, Greek word stratos, from which we get strategy. The word wars, by the way, is the word polemos, from which we get polemic. And members is the word melos, as, as in melody. So it's kind of interesting that we ought to live harmoniously together, but we don't. We're always quarreling and fighting. And he says that somehow it's related to our pursuit of pleasure. Now, how could that possibly be? How could that, how can you connect that? Sounds like a total connection, disconnect. You lust, the word lust is, could be neutral. It means you, you strongly desire. It could be legitimate desire, like you're very hungry. You lust and do not have, so you murder and covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. Now that's uh, James' usually strong way of talking to us, very straightforward, is it not? How in the world does this all connect together? How in the world can my... Innocent, harmless pursuit for my own pleasure and happiness possibly have anything to do with war, war or quarreling or my inability to get along with other people, which escalates up to being a war between nations. How in the world could that be? 
Are we not uh, men and women with natural desires that God created us for? Yes. Did he not intend for us happiness and pleasure? Uh, what, remember what Solomon says about happiness and contentment in life, where it comes from? In Ecclesiastes? says, happiness and contentment will elude you unless it comes as a gift from God. God chooses who to make happy and contented in their work, and he chooses those that please him, and everybody else is going to be discontented in their pursuit of pleasure. What happens if you're busy pursuing the good life and it eludes you? How do you feel? Frustrated? Angry? Resentful? The neighbors next door seem to be so much more happy than, than uh, we are. Maybe it's their nice new car or maybe it's their new swimming pool. Uh, maybe that's what we need. Maybe that's why we're not happy. Uh, why is that? What, so, yeah. I think the key word here is envy. Envy, all right. Uh, envy. Yeah, and, and the word covet means the desire to have something uh, more than you really need. It means the desire to have more, period, more, uh, more sex, more money, more, whether you need it or not. So here are all these unfulfilled desires in people, and they do the logical thing to try to fill those desires, meet the right person, marry the right person, get the right job, do, do everything right, and... And it all fails. And with the, with the emptiness is still there. And with the emptiness comes anger, frustration, rage, murder, resentment. And uh, James says uh, the, the, simp- the causes and, and the solution is very simple. John. Oh, oh excuse me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Here, here we do. We have the Greek word from which we get the common English word hedonism, and hedonism is a Greek philosophy, and it's a way of life. It's the pursuit of pleasure as an end in itself. Do we have people in this area that pursue pleasure for its own end? We sure do. We have a whole lot of people like that around here. Uh, that, whose whole lives are content uh, to pursue their own personal pleasure, no matter what price others might pay for that. Uh, and now the, he, he, he clenches this right up and he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And the implication there is, how come you didn't ask God to fulfill you in the first place? Because he would have been very happy to do so because he loves you. God loves to make people happy and fulfilled. He created you. He knows how to make you uh, fulfilled and happy and if and if you'd allowed him to do that he would have done that and then you wouldn't be in the mess you're in see that conclusion oh (laughs) sort of stops you dead in your tracks doesn't it and then he goes right on from there and he says uh, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss bad word there in greek kakos badly, that you may spend it or squander it on your pleasures. You ask of God and you ask wrongly or you ask amiss because you want things for your own selfish pleasure and God doesn't give them to you and so you're even more angry. Anybody do that ever? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. So, so he says God's not going to answer you if you're answering from selfish motives and for the wrong reason. And if you're only partly committed to him, don't count on an answer from God. So that would take in all the sort of part-time Christians that just use God for an emergency escape and an aspirin substitute, something like that. It is amazing how much focus is placed today in the church on, and I, I think not here, hopefully not, but on personal wealth. Health, wealth, and happiness. I don't know if you saw the 60 Minutes episode on Joel Osteen the other day. I think it was quite revealing because he has the most popular, biggest church in the country, raking in money in big buckets. And it's all health, wealth, prosperity. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be fulfilled. Uh, God does not want you to have pain and cancer, and he'd like you to be better off financially. So that's about all he says. Not much about 
what happens if you happen to have cancer or you're suffering or there's sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. That sort of gets overlooked. That's a, a health and wealth and prosperity gospel is very common today and people flock to it and put good money in the offering for that. All right? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to squander it on your pleasures. Now, he comes out with a very strong instant indictment. He uses the Greek word adulteresses. Some translations will have adulterers and adulteresses, the feminine and the masculine, but the better translations just have the word adulteresses, they're feminine. You whores. I mean, that's kind of how it would come across if he's talking in the, to his congregation. You prostitutes, spiritually speaking, you guys are a bunch of prostitutes because do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, that's a familiar theme out of the Old Testament, isn't it? Israel uh, is the wife of God, and what kind of wife does Israel prove to be? A harlot. She proves to be a prostitute, uh, and she whores around with other gods and other lovers, and meanwhile, her rightful husband uh, doesn't get the attention he deserves. I wasn't there for the first service, but you can comment on it. Uh, remember the, the first two commandments uh, that, got, that sum up all the law of Moses asks of us. To love God with our whole heart, our whole minds, our whole souls, and our whole, and then our neighbors as ourselves. Yeah. This way, not to love or turn to worldly people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, Thanks. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. See, what James is talking about is our own selfish pursuit of pleasure, which pretty means, well, means we don't have time to love other people. We don't have time, energy to be available to the hurting people around us because we're preoccupied with our own selfish pleasures. That okay? And, of course, if you get involved with the lost of this world, it starts being costly to you in terms of time and energy and resources. And, and, uh, and yeah, yeah. And the word cosmos, the word is the world system. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Remember that First John says this. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. All is that in the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passes away and the lust thereof, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Same thing. Do not love the world system. The world system is based on the pursuit of pleasure, power, wealth, success, it's all uh, hierarchical. And the, that's the world system. This isn't nature. It isn't uh, the birds and the flowers and the waves on the ocean and the beautiful forest. It isn't nature. It's the world system in which we live. Okay? So that's where... That's where why this strong language adulteress says. Uh, think of our, we think of ourselves, we are the bride of Christ. We're a chaste virgin bride getting ready for a, a wedding with the bridegroom who's coming for us. And so uh, uh, Jesus wants a bridegroom who is pure and dedicated and ready for the great wedding feast. That's the New Testament imagery. And the Old Testament imagery is the image of Jehovah married to Israel who proves to be less than a faithful Wife, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, 
Oh, by the way, just that last verse, whoever uh, makes himself a friend of the world, whoever uh, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, that's pretty strong. You can't be a friend of the world system. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with the people in the world. It's, you can't uh, go along with the world system as a lifestyle and, without becoming an enemy of God, finding yourself in opposition to God. So that's very strong language. Do you think... Yeah, it's idolatry, because it is idolatry. It is, that's the heart of it. Yeah. Do you... I think what Steve uh, mentioned earlier is very, very practical. He said, what are the risks of reaching out? And in what way should I uh, reach out? And what are the risks? And, and that's a really good point. Because I think if you want to reach out to others, and then uh, you might actually be lured away uh, with your own lust. Yes, it's difficult to have a job, to have friends in the world, to be busy in the world, and and not be diverted from your devotion to God. Isn't that something that we all face every day? How do you love God with your whole heart and still go to work, still live with your employers and so on? Yeah. And support groups are very important. Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, the the answer to this would not be to, be to sit at home and do nothing and be full of sloth and not not get involved in the world. That wouldn't work. Sloth is. Go to your job and work work hard with uh, with all of your energy and all your might to the glory of God. But it's the motives of your heart. You're not doing it for selfish purposes to get rich famous and successful you're doing it to honor god and honor him with your the gifts that he's given you we've got to be in the world and not of the world (laughs) we could drop out and and pursue pursue pleasure that way too yeah yep Yes, and it, and as a, and 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 it's really clear in Ecclesiastes that God gives pleasure to people when they please Him with the way they live. He dumps it on you just right out of the blue, no matter what your circumstances are. Happiness and joy and contentment and pleasure are a gift from God, and He gives it to people when they please Him. And it looks and it's probably not what you've aimed at. <laughs> it's very different. Surprises you. Surprises you. Do you suppose, uh, do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in you yearns jealously? That's a famously difficult verse in Greek. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit of God yearns jealously or really it's zealously for us? That would, the spirit that God has put in you yearns to bring you fulfillment and happiness. God is a jealous lover. He yearns. The spirit in you yearns to, to make you happy and fulfilled. And, and the way you're living is, is essentially you're fighting God. You cause God pain and heartbreak because you're not paying attention to him. Kind of see that in verse 5. I don't know. Some of the other translations of verse 5 differently than that. The spirit who dwells in us yearns zealously or jealously. New American says, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Yes. So the father is, yeah, the father has put the spirit in you and he uh, yearns for the spirit to have the right to rule in your heart and life and have his will in your heart. And you're not cooperating with the spirit that's in you. 
I think that's the idea here. But he gives more grace. Uh, there's always these wonderful little bits in uh, uh, James. The last one we had was mercy triumphs over judgment. Uh, we get all scared about getting in trouble with God, and, we're, and then it says his mercy triumphs over judgment, so you've got all the mercy you want. And now he says God gives more grace. How much grace do you need? I use up a lot of the grace that's available in the whole Bay Area every week. And if you find there's a shortage of grace, it might be because it's all being funneled over to me. <laughs> the idea would be that you can have as much help from God as you need, so don't give up on yourself. Don't be discouraged. Don't be depressed. Don't stop and think, I've really messed up my life and there's no hope for me and God's given up on me because he hasn't. He yearns and longs for your heart no matter what your track record might be. That's the heart of God, the compassionate heart of God, the God of grace and mercy. Your sins are all paid for. That's not the issue. The issue isn't your sin. The issue is will you line up with God and allow him to live in and through you. That's what he wants. I like that. And then there's this nice little quote here uh, that he pulls out of the Psalms. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, the word resist there is a military term. God garrisons himself against the proud. God mounts an army against the proud. God goes to war against the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And there goes, again, the heart of all human evil, the heart of all our problems is our pride. That goes to the core of uh, all of our ambition and our greed and our selfishness and our all the inward pride that makes us touchy and defensive and difficult to reason with. It's all just pride. And God resists the proud. <laughs> Pretty bad to have God with his army mounted in opposition against little old you, against your little tower of pride. Can't stand up. And on the other hand, God gives grace to the humble. Plenty of grace to the humble. Uh, and, and so James gives us the cure. He says, uh, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee for you. The term resist, here's another military term. Set yourself against the devil. Submit to God. That means turn your life over to Jesus unconditionally. Start all over again. Lord, you, I gave you my heart and life. I'm giving it to you again today. I've uh, lapsed a little bit in, in my obedience to you. Would you please take over everything all over again and let's start over uh, fresh and new today. And by the way, the devil has been hassling me, so mount a campaign against the devil. Don't give in, don't yield, stand strong, because God's with you. There are other places in the Bible where it says flee from, the, flee from evil, to run away from it, like flee fornication, for example, would be. There are situations that you run from, but ordinarily when the devil is testing you, just put up your defenses and ignore him, and he'll eventually go away. You don't have to be worried about him. God's on your side. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Peter has that, that same quote. It's three or four times in the New Testament. And notice it's unconditional promise. Absolutely, I love this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, usually if you're guilty or you're depressed or you're discouraged, it's very difficult to draw near to God. You don't want to draw near to God. Isn't that so? You think, oh, it won't do any good. Oh, I've, uh, I can fix this myself. Oh, God wouldn't want to listen to me because I messed up so badly. No, this is unconditional. Draw near to God. It's best you know how, and he absolutely for sure will draw near to you. Try that. Works. Works amazingly well. I'm always absolutely amazed when I've tried this. Called out to God and said, look, here's where I'm at. This is how I'm feeling. This is where I, what's going on in my life. I think I probably need a lot of help. Do you think you can do anything about my situation? Help, help. And God says, too late. My, my list of requests is full today. Come back tomorrow. I put you on hold. No, he doesn't do that. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Pretty neat. Now, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Uh, he's pretty strong here. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That word double-minded we ran on to in chapter 1. Two-souled, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of God. 
Can't make up your mind whether to serve Jesus and serve self. So you're in in the middle, double-minded. And so he's uh, leveling at his whole congregation here, in the plural, all of you guys. He treats us like a bunch of sinners. Clean, clean up your lives, you sinners. It sounds like old-fashioned revival-style preaching from hundred years ago, doesn't it? But it still, of course, uh, applies. The word, the word cleanse is an interesting Greek word. Where's Professor Anneker go? It's our, it gives us our English word catharsis. A catharsis is a purge. If you, if a catharsis means a thorough purging. Thorough purging. Uh, that's the idea of being really cleaned, you know, scrubbed clean inside. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Go to the motives again. Look at your motives, not just your outward behavior. And uh, stop being double-minded. Anchor yourself in the kingdom of God and uh, no more of this two-souled, split personality living. Lament. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The word laughter, the word for frivolity. So he's not saying they run around looking sour and gloomy and depressed and sad. That's not the idea. He's saying here, some of you have are very frivolous and very superficial, and you don't take God seriously. You don't take life happy-go-lucky, easy come, easy go lifestyle. Knock it off. <laughs> Knock it off. Here he says. Lament and mourn. Have you ever, have you ever, uh, maybe wake up in the middle of the night and gone back over your past life at all? Not fun. And looked at the things that you thought maybe were really great and you look at them in the second light and they weren't so great after all. And maybe your motives weren't all that good. And what a nasty brat I was when I was 14. And what a, and gosh, I said some really bad things yesterday to that dear person. Uh, well, that's the idea here. Yes, it is exactly. There is a reference to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, is it? So this wouldn't mean you stay in the state of mourning and depression. It means you feel the sorrow of your own sins and you give them to God. And with that comes the refreshing and the forgiveness of God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's no he's just no nonsense preacher. You get this guy you can see his style. Must be a marvelous man when we get to meet him. If he'll invite us over to his house, which I hope he will. Um verse ten. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and he will lift you up. And the and the the verb there is be humbled. Be humbled in the sight of God, because we don't even know how to humble ourselves. We don't even know when we're being proud sometimes. Sometimes you have to say, God, show me if I am proud and arrogant and presumptuous and self-righteous. Point that out to me. We don't know ourselves very well enough. Lord, I probably need some humbling today, uh, this week. Uh, Mark Driscoll from uh, Mars Hill Church in Seattle. We had a whole sermon on this all week. He talks for an hour at a time. Preaches in ours, young young preacher, and he was becoming aware of his own lack of humility in his life. He's a young man in his 30s, and he his whole sermon was just about uh, the chagrin he felt at realizing how how much pride there was in his life as a young pastor, and how much damage he'd done to other people because of his pride. It's good. It's a good sermon. I wanted to shut it off, but. Uh, yes, but the tests and temptations also, remember, produce patience and endurance. Yes, but, but uh, trials and testings and, and uh, obstacles in our life are, make us think twice, don't they? Now, verse 11, he changes the subjects, and this sounds now like the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, he comes back on real strong. Verse 11, do not slander, do not speak evil of one another, brothers. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. 
if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? Do not speak. This is also this is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not that you be not judged. With the judgments you mete out against others, you yourself will be judged. If you're going to judge people harshly, then God's going to judge you by the same standard. And the idea of judgment here is not evaluating, discerning, helping another person. That isn't it. Because we do evaluate, understand, get to know our brothers and sisters, help them with their faults and shortcomings. That's not the idea here. The idea in this judgment is putting somebody else down to make yourself look better. Is that the idea? Now, what, what, what is at the heart of this? Why should you not judge another brother when his or her faults are so obvious? So clear. Nobody could miss them. <laughs> Why? Why can't you? Wouldn't it be obvious that you... That, Well, we've got the, we do have that little humorous teaching of Jesus says, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, go take the plank or the log out of your own eye first, because you probably have a bigger defect than the little problem in your brother's eye. Yeah, if you're going to judge other people, God will use that standard against you. Yeah, Michael and the uh, devil wrestling together don't pronounce judgment. Even Michael, the great angel over Israel. Now, what, what's it, what is he saying here about human beings and God and our individual relationship with God? God is the judge of every single individual one at a time. Do we know everything about a person? Do we know their history? Do we know uh, their motives? Do we know all of the circumstances of their life? Do we know everything there is to know that would go into evaluating or judging a person's life? Think how difficult in a court of law it is to get the, the in, basic information about a traffic accident out where you can make a reasonable judgment, which is a, just a trivial situation compared to evaluating a person's whole life. How about that God isn't finished with me yet sort of issue? Uh, well, yes, don't we all have faults and flaws, and isn't God working on all of us, and aren't we all expecting to pass the course eventually? Yeah, we are. And who is the only person in the universe that knows us well enough to thoroughly evaluate us, fix us, heal us? God, our Creator. Notice the, what, what James does is puts a very, very high value on every single person in the universe, whether they're believers or not believers how valuable human beings are to God who t reserves the right to be the judge of all. I'm not sure it's implied, but it seems like if you judge somebody, you've basically written them off and said God can't save them, yeah. it seems like. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, exactly right. I'm not sure if I understood you. Like we have a lot of slaves. Yes, slaves. Does anybody have any? I'm not sure I totally. Yes. 
uh, every single day we have to make ordinary decisions about some people to avoid, some people to deal carefully with, some people to not get into arguments with, some people that uh, uh, will cause us trouble if we uh, get too involved with them. That's all not judging them. That's not all in the class of judge, uh, is it? Yeah, yeah. That we have all the advice in Proverbs about avoiding evil people and scoffers and mockers and hanging out with good company. That's all something else. John chapter 5 says that the, the judgment of the whole world is in the hands of Jesus. That, that all judgment is given to Jesus. So at the end of your life, every single one of us is going to go have a one-on-one little conference time with Jesus and he's going to give us the personal report card on our life, whether we know him or don't know him. Is that going to be fair, honest, thorough, accurate? Yeah, it's going to be incredibly so. Yeah. Um, it comes to my mind judgment within the Christian community versus accountability. Is judgment a much harsher word? Yes. There's a great deal in the New Testament. Lots in the New Testament about uh, evaluating and helping one another, about church discipline, about uh, uh, having friends that you can uh, be transparent with who will help you with your false shortcomings because we're a family. That's all in a, that's perfectly legitimate because that's not putting somebody down. It's helping them. Yeah. A condemning judgment. That's the idea here. A long ways away from evaluating, discerning, um, understanding, compassionate. Bob. Fruit inspectors. <laughs> and um, we're very good. And along with fruit inspecting, we can dig around the roots of the tree, I guess, and put fertilizer on the tree and uh, help with the pruning of the branches, can we? Spray for med flies. <laughs> we can spray for med flies. Yes, the health and well-being of the body is of concern to all of us. So... In general, because the world has been on the pursuit of pleasure, there, when we engage somebody, we're generally finding them in a selfish, quarrelsome, uh, defensive attitude. Yes. Don't you? Oh yeah, yeah. Your opponent would like to bring you around to his point of view, possible. Yeah. If you uh, let's see, do not speak evil of one another, brothers. Don't slander one another. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and it judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Now. There, you see the, con, the, the condemn, the idea of condemning. 
how can you condemn somebody that God loves, that God cares about, that God has is going to take care of, and What the law does, the, the, the law of Moses tells us what God's like as a person. It tells us in great detail what God likes, what he doesn't like, what we have to become like eventually in the long run. It's the court of a detailed explanation of this is the kind of God we're dealing with. Now, uh, are you going to step in and play God in the life of another person? That would be that playing God or pretending to know more than God or pretending to speak for God when you're not speaking for God. That would be to condemn, to judge somebody. And, and you know, we've all had people play God with us. Well, that's the idea of playing God, taking God's place. And that, behind that's usually our pride and our self-righteousness. And it's usually, I'm better than you are. In this area, or and you're no good, be the idea. That's the other thing. If you're busy judging and putting down your brother, how can you be loving him? And if you're loving him, you're looking out for his best interest. What what do I do to help this person, flawed or whatever? That wouldn't be the negative judgment that he's talking about here. That would be uh, somebody, a a professing Christian is sleeping with his girlfriend, and uh, they they both say, well, we love each other, so it's okay for us to sleep together. And you would be correct to go to them and say, what you are doing is wrong because your behavior is inconsistent with the scriptures. And that you would be evaluating their situation in a loving way. That is not the judgment that James is talking about here. Because you're showing love and compassion for them, uh, you're not. Right. Okay. So I'm familiar with that way. Which one are you talking about now? Because that's what I'm having trouble with. Writing somebody else off, uh, treating them as second rate, and I'm better than you are, and and you're all screwed up, and you'll never get your act together, and okay. you're a loser. It's a different total attitude. Yeah. Yeah. James is talking to us as brothers. He's talking to his his Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, his congregation, uh, his family. Yeah. Yeah. With it, it's it overflows into how you treat your natural family members and how you treat your neighbors. But it, but he's really talking about us who profess to be Christians. Yeah, but non-Christians, you still you still treat as objects of God's love. Objects of they have God's image. Well, that's God's problem. You see. Well, but if somebody is if somebody doesn't have respect for God, that issue is mostly between them and God. And so I wouldn't. I don't. I don't condemn the person because they're. They don't want God. I, lo- I show them as much love as I can. You can say, well, I understand how you feel. Well, then let them, let them think of you as stupid. Okay, don't miss this morning's sermon. To write somebody off, to put, you know, there's no hope for you. You're, you're always going to be a jerk. Slander is in here. Slander helps. You see, 
I think the word judge is used so broadly today that we don't quite see what he's doing here. It's restoration. Yeah. This kind of judgment is is wanting somebody dead. It's wanting to harm them. It's not wanting to help them. We got to finish this. Let's see. But that's that's just, that's uh, corrective. Remember, that's redemptive. Go. Yeah, there's no need for us to judge one another because Jesus has already judged, been judged on our behalf. And if there's things in our lives that need fixing, he will get around to fixing them in due time. So it's none of our, it's not our business to do that. This is, uh, you can see how much uh, food for thought there is here. Now he changes his subject. Uh, he says, uh, uh, don't judge each other. I, all week long you guys have to pray through this and uh, repent and whatever you might have to do. Now... A new subject. I love this little section of James that comes next. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and get gain, buy and sell and make a profit. Uh, Come now, let's move to San Francisco. Let's move up the Bay Area and get a good job in Silicon Valley and we'll make lots of money and we'll get a good house up in the mountains here and... uh, he, he, he says that's very common. He says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Ugh. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Did he not say the same thing? What is your life? Which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to the span of his life? Take no thought for tomorrow, but tomorrow will take care of itself. Same thing. Probably where James gets this basic idea from. Uh, You do not know about tomorrow. Your life is a brief little mist that appears a short time and vanishes away. Instead, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Take one day at a time. Then, God willing, I'll do this. God willing, Steve will go to Africa. God willing, he'll stay in good health and come back safely and and not be uh, taken by a tribe, hostile tribe, for ransom. <laughs> Which would strain all of our pocketbooks because we, we would pay exorbitant sums to get him back. <laughs> Gladly. <laughs> you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now it is, you, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows what is to do, what is good, and does not do it, to him it is sin. In that last verse, he throws in this whole big issue of sins of omission. Oh, huge subject in itself. If you know the right thing to do in a situation and you don't do it, that, you, that's a sin. Not acting when you should act. All the sins of omission. He throws that at you just to leave you with a little warm, pleasant thought for the rest of the week. <laughs> uh, notice here how James is so practical about the brevity of life, the uncertainty of life, uh, the, the shortness of life, and, and what a uh, joy it is if you can take one day at a time. If you, Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. If you can get up in the morning and say, this is the day the Lord's made, it's in your hands, Lord, whatever you want, uh, good, bad, troubles, trials. At the end of the day, you say, that closes this day. Get a good night's sleep. We'll take tomorrow, tomorrow. Does that mean that you shouldn't pray long-term plans for the next five years or ten years? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Because you do. student going off to college is going to pray about what school and what to study and what to major in. And you're going to find a job. You're going to pray about that and send out your resumes. If you're going to buy a house, are you going to do house hunting and and sign a 30-year mortgage? Yes, you're going to do. All those are long-term things. But 
What's James saying here? There's a really great joy in this. One day at a time. God takes care of tomorrow. Isn't this good? Come let us reason together. Isn't this great? I think that behind this is a very loving, compassionate man with a pastor's heart for his people, and uh, he has a very much of a no-nonsense attitude, but he certainly would have had a life full of joy, and he wants us to have lives full of joy in the middle of trials and circumstances. Yeah. Roy? Rejoice always, pray constantly, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Uh, yeah. Isn't he also trying to say uh, Second Corinthians uh, 4, Yes, all of these things of this short temporary life are not the real treasure. Our real treasure is invisible. Did you have a... It just reminded me that that thing, each day is a gift. That's why it's called the present. The present. We call today the present because it is a gift. That's good. John, we got to quit. Okay. Okay. This one is, has been described as the word of wisdom. So I think that flashes back to all the judging, concerning discussion, and so on. Oh, good. Whether someone's really dumping on somebody, mm-hmm. or whether they're acting to restore them, the observer ought to be able to say, wow, that's wisdom. I like that. You know, that's telling people to hold to the Lord. It's restorative, it's not destructive. Thank you. That's great. Well, good chapter, huh? <laughs> Lord, thanks. Uh, we do pray. It looks like James was addressing a bunch of problems, frankly, here. And we pray, Lord, that you would seek those out in our own lives, that we would be humble and ask you, Lord, what it is you'd have us to do. Uh, thanks, Father, for a great discussion and teaching. And we ask your blessing, Lord, on the next service as musicians. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you. I just love James. I just, he's.